for Sober Chicks podcast listeners. This is Meredith. And as always, I'm joined by Heather, Dana, and Lisa. So we gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and the various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, hello for Sober Chicks podcast world. Uh, This is Meredith. And we are coming to you again live, all four of us. Um, Today, we are actually going to jump into our stories. Uh, Stories are a huge part of recovery. Um, It's a huge part, honestly, of addiction. But everyone's story is so different um, that we think it's really important because we think that a lot of what we have in our stories is insanely relatable. So today we're going to go over Heather's story um, as well as Lisa's. And as you guys follow us through these podcasts, um, we may elaborate, you know, on some things and there may be some things that we don't really elaborate on or even touch on uh, just due to the fact of once it's out there verbally, it's out there. So um, with that, I'm going to pass it over to Heather and um, yeah, I'm excited to hear your story. Hello, I'm Heather, Um, and this is, wow, I've been thinking a lot about kind of like what to even say. I've told my story definitely before in the rooms. Um, I even Googled like risk factors for addiction, and I hit all of them. So um, I'm going to try to gear my story. My story has a lot of trauma. Um, So... I'm going to try to tell it in a way that doesn't make me cry. Um, all right. So my, and if it does, that's okay. Yes. <laughs> I have tissues actually. I brought them with me. Um, so my story starts, I guess when I was about five um, and my parents got divorced. So both of my parents were, amazing people. My father was an artist. My mom uh, was a nurse. So um, I get a lot of like the art and the science from them. And both of them were, in my opinion, addicts. Um, And from a very young age, drugs were always around. There was a a pot room in our house that they grew it. Um, It was decriminalized at that time. Um, They were hippies. They were full on hippies. Like I was born in Berkeley, California. And so um, drugs were always kind of around in a normal part of just life. It wasn't an abnormal thing. So my father got divorced. My mom and my father got divorced when I was five because my dad came out. And um, so he moved to San Francisco to live his life as an openly gay man in 1980. And um, that was not really a conducive lifestyle to being a parent. So I didn't have a whole lot of, my dad wasn't really a part of my life. I would go and spend summers with him. um, And 
it was like basically a mom, my mom's break. And so the first summer that I went to stay with him, my mom called me and I also think she was undiagnosed bipolar and this will be an evidence of, so my mom calls me and says, guess what? I got married. Do you want to talk to your stepdad? And this is, so I'm like six, seven. I'm a little fuzzy on how old I think it was about six. Um, So she puts me on the line with my new stepdad, uh, who we will call Chad. Um, And Chad's a dirtbag. Chad is a drug dealer who is living in California illegally. He's a Canadian citizen who had outstayed his um, visa and was living in the U.S. illegally. So I go home to meet my new stepdad. My parents have been, my mom and, and, and Chad have been detained in Mexico because of his like stuff. So this is, this is how I live, right? I'm giving you context of like, what was life for me? So um, we move in or Chad moves in with us and he moves his like lackey in with us because he's a drug dealer. And so like, that's what drug dealers do. Um, we move to another house and Chad is extremely violent. He's extremely abusive to my mother. He's extremely abusive to me physically um, and emotionally. And as an adult, now I see where it all starts because after that year of living with this incredibly abusive person, I go and stay with my dad who just wants to like do whatever a summer dads do and just let me eat whatever I want to eat. And this is when I start to connect food with altering my feeling state. So I'm staying with my dad and my mom calls and says, I've left Chad and we're living in Toronto and I'm now with Chad's brother, Dan, who she had met in Christmas over Christmas and they had fallen in love when he came to visit. So she says to me, um, do you, oh, and he has two kids. Um, do you want to leave your dad's early and, and come to Toronto and, um, and meet your new family? Um, and I'm like seven, eight, seven. Um, and so I say, yeah, of course I do. This is amazing. This is like an adventure, right? And that was the last time I ever saw my father was that summer. Um, which is an incredibly painful thing for me over the years. So we go to live in Toronto with Dan. Um, and Dan is a product of the same family that Chad came from and is extremely abusive as well, but not to my mother, just to me. And um, I have now found that food changes my feeling state. I'm also a kid who is basically a latchkey kid. So I'm home from like, three until six when everybody gets home and I have three hours and my life is very, very lonely. And so I start food, food is my comfort and I start gaining weight. Um, and my mom who appearance was very important to her. She was a gorgeous woman, um, who had an eating disorder, um, decided that wasn't okay. And so she started to control all my food and weigh me on a daily basis. And if I gained weight, I wasn't allowed to eat with the family. I had to, I was secluded and I was, um, I had to eat by myself 
And if I gained weight, they would make me go and apologize to my neighbors, to my friends. They would anything to like embarrass me um, to try to get me to stop. They would tell my teachers I was watched at school. Um, but it, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was just like getting drugs or alcohol. I would find money in the house and I would go to the local store and I would buy large amounts of candy. And that I felt rich. I felt full, like I felt um, like you do when you first get that, you know, that high, that rush. Right. Um, and I can still remember it. So Dan eventually loses his job because he's an alcoholic and they're downsizing. And so he's someone to go. So now he's at home with me all the time after school and he's drunk pretty much all day. And so um, the abuse just gets worse. And eventually um, my mom decides it's enough and, and we move. And this was kind of like, this is how things went. You know, one day I have, I'm living in a house and the next I have a new stepfather. One day I'm living with the stepfather and the next day we're living in another country. You know, one day we're living in, in Toronto. Now we're back in the States. Like um, no chance to say goodbye to my friends. Like just life, I was just ripped out of my life on a regular basis. Um, so we moved to Pittsburgh and, um, my mom always looked for things outside herself. So she is, you know, um, very savvy businesswoman, so smart and always trying to fill. So there are men in and out of our house there. I can't even tell you how many times I've called hospitals because I had no idea what this was before self. She had a phone in her car, but this is before cell phones. I would not know where she was. She would leave me alone. She would go and drink. She would come, she would drink and drive. I, I, I used to call hospital emergency rooms to see if my mom was, was alive. Uh, Cause I would have no idea where she was and she would pay me to stay by myself so that she could go and, you know, like spend the night with some guy or whatever. Um, and that was, again, a very lonely time. Food was a huge part of, of that time, but she had stopped caring at this point. She had given up on me. So I was kind of up to my own devices. And I forgot to mention, I had not had contact with my dad in five years at this point because he was not responsible. He wouldn't call me on the day that he said he was going to call me. And so I would just sit by the phone and wait all day. Um, and so my mom kind of said, this isn't healthy. You need to either, you need to not be a part of her life. And he, uh, he complied with what she asked. So, um, being that he was a gay male, it's the height of the AIDS epidemic. I started to have dreams that he was going to call me and tell me that he was dying of AIDS. And so my mom picked me up one day uh, and took me out to dinner, Burger King of all places. And we're in the drive-through. And she said, if your dad was dying, would you want to know? 
I'm 13 at the time. And I said, yeah, I would want to know. And she said, um, you know, he had found my grandparents and reached out and wanted to connect and that he was dying. And she told me he was dying of cancer because I had disclosed to my best friend that my dad was gay. And at that time, that was like such a taboo thing that we got in a fight over a summer and she told all of our friends that my father was gay. And so my mom knew that I wouldn't be able to like keep that to myself. And so in protecting me, she just told me he was dying of cancer. Um, and so I had, I had a couple conversations with him. Um, He bought me like my favorite tapes at that time. This is how far back we're going. Um, and I got to kind of have rekindle a little bit of my relationship with him before he passed away. So he died in November of my 13th year. And, um, you know, it was my first kind of experience of death. And it was really like, someone that shouldn't should have been in my life but really wasn't so you know you mourn the person and you mourn the relationship that you never had so my mom's solution and how she dealt with this was that she and a, and a group uh another nurse and a couple doctors they started a home health care company for um men who had aids and so that they could have treatment and die with dignity in their own homes. This is my mom's response. I mean, she was an amazing woman. Um, and through that's what she decided to do with this energy. So they formed this company. And my mom meets this other um, gay man who is dying because um, the, the client, the, the company is small and they all know their patients and everything. And she falls in love with this man. And she moves him into our home and she cares for him for the last year of his life. And in that time, she is not taking care of me. She is living this fantasy of this unrequited love. And it was, um, and, and taking care of this man uh, who is a lovely person, um, a lovely person, but just, like not, not, I don't know. I, I just, well, it's my life. So it was normal for me, you know, I guess everybody does this. So she lived her, his last year, like it was her last year. And she kind of stopped going to work and she um, did drugs and drank all the time and just kind of did whatever. And so he passed away. Um, July 5th um, and she took her own life seven days later to the hour
and I found her. And this really, as long as it's taken me to kind of resolve and, and kind of deal with that loss, um, I think it actually saved my life because my mother was so destructive. She just, but she was an addict, you know, she, she was an undiagnosed person with mental illness. She did the best that she could, but she was never really a good mom. And I had started drinking at this point. I was, you know, when she's spending this year of her life taking care of someone else and not taking care of her child, I was 15. I just emptied the liquor cabinet. Like I just numbed. I used food. I used alcohol. I stole some of their drugs and tried those. Um, when I was 15 after she died, it was the first time I was sober. And um, because I could see at that point that my relationship with drugs and alcohol was not normal and it was not healthy. And I just watched my mother end her life. Um, and I really believed that drugs and alcohol were a huge part of that because if she was sober and going through what she had gone through, perhaps she would have seen an out or perhaps she would have, I don't know. I don't know. So, um, so I'm at 15, I'm an orphan. I have a half brother who's 10 years older than me. My mom got pregnant when she was 15. Um, and my grandparents raised him because she would do things like meet a truck driver at a truck stop and get married, you know, stuff like that. So my grandparents took my brother um, and they just didn't have the, the capacity to take care of both of her children. So I remained with her. Um, so my brother was my initial guardian and uh, we have a, a good relationship now, but he was a young dad. He had four kids. Um, he lived in a very rural area. He was very religious and um, he did not understand how to take care of or provide for me. And so um, I needed therapy. I needed, I needed a lot. Um, so I had to petition the courts and have my guardianship changed. And um, I was adopted at 15 by my mom's business partner into her family. Um, and all I really wanna say about that relationship, at least on air, is that um, she provided me a safe place, um, but she was best friends with someone who was an addict and mentally ill. And so, you know, um, she did the best she could, but we do not have a relationship today. And <clears throat> so I went to, I, after my mom died and I was sober for the first time, my eating disorder be formalized. It was the first time I really went from overeating to not eating. 
And um, thankfully, I had access to therapy and tried to work some things out. Um, and I went to the first year of college, I lived at home. And the second year I lived away. And that was, I had access to everything. And I had no parents and I had no boundaries and I had no anything, no rules. It was on, you know, mm -hmm. and I had, uh, I experimented with everything I could get my hands on. You know, college was full on. I, I did graduate. Um, I still was able to like make it to school and, and so forth, sometimes not well. Um, but, you know, I put myself in a lot of really dangerous, really sketchy situations. And if when I was a sophomore or junior, my grandmother passed away. <clears throat> and I believe firmly that she was my guardian angel for the rest of it. And still is because somebody was watching over me, the places and the things that I did. Um, she definitely was with me and she definitely watched over me. So college is this big haze. Um, when drugs and alcohol were involved, then food wasn't an issue. When it got towards the end, when I was going to graduate, I think not knowing what was going to happen next kicked off this whole new uh, eating disorder time. And I ended up hospitalized because I was so destructive at that point. And that was my first introduction to 12 step meetings um, was in the ED unit. Um, but I got out and I was, you know, 21, 20, I don't even know, 21, 22. I, it didn't stick. I just went right back to drinking and, and whatever. Um, but one thing I did do is to myself and, and two of my best friends, we took a train across country and we went to look for graduate schools, right? I don't think I ever saw a graduate school that entire trip, but that was the goal of the trip. And when we were in California, I sat down with my mom, my mom's best friend, who also was really close to my father. And she gave me like six hours of her time and just answered all these questions that I had about my parents and like about my childhood. Because when my parents died, I lost my childhood. I, I didn't have baby scrapbooks. I didn't have, I didn't have normalcy. So I definitely didn't have anything left. And so she filled in like a lot of questions, like how the hell did I exist when my dad was gay? And, you know, like, how did that even happen? And, um, you know, basically what she was able to help me understand and really heal was that while they shouldn't have been parents, I was very much loved and wanted. I was a definitely an accident, but, um, they very much loved me and wanted me. So after that visit, I really was able to heal a portion where I didn't have an issue with food after that. Oh, well, I have an issue with sugar, but like I didn't have, I wasn't in an eating disorder behavior anymore. I wasn't restricting. I wasn't um, doing those behaviors anymore. So that was kind of a, that helped me heal a, a big 
pain at that point. So I go to graduate school. I end up going to Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. And the first week of graduate school, I meet this guy at a bar. And I'm happy to say that 22 years later, he's still my guy. And um, again, I feel like my grandmother was with me because I should never have met such a normal, amazing, healthy, sweet person at a bar with my history. Like, that's not who I should have met. I should have met a disaster. And that's not who I met. Um, <clears throat> and for a lot of years, things were pretty good and normal. You know, not great. I have always had poor boundaries with alcohol um, and with pot. And and, you know, maybe partied a little longer than I should have, but we didn't have kids at the time. And so, you know, like I was always the life of the party, like that was who I was, you know, I was the one that was crazy and always doing something, you know, and um, that's fine when you're young. It's when you're like 27 and you're still doing it, 30, you're still doing it. And no one else is, you know, that's when it starts to get old. So um, and then we had kids and like, when we had kids initially, like I had to be a, a responsible mom. Like, so I wasn't out at bars. I wasn't doing those things. Like I was, you know, um, I wanted to be a mom more than anything in the whole world. That was, I think the second conversation I had with, with my husband, when I met him, like, do you want kids? And, uh, what do you think about stay at home moms? Like, that's always what I wanted. I wanted that family that I never had. But what I didn't know is that it would kind of trigger these feelings of loneliness and loss and all of that, like not having the family that I wanted. And so when girls night started to come and girls weekends were there, then I, or, you know, you'd have a girlfriend over one bottle of wine would be two bottles of wine. A double bottle was always a standard. Maybe there were two double bottles because you didn't drive and the kids were in bed. Right. So this mommy wine thing is, it's real. And it's like, it's very, you know, our, my girlfriend would walk home, like we lived in the same neighborhood, you know? So um, then I started to indulge because there was this just sense of loss that like having my own kids started to tap into that. I just didn't know how to deal with. Um, and also I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a parent there that, that like, parents there you know nobody I didn't have my parents there for graduation either of them I didn't have them there for my wedding I didn't have them there for my children's birth so all of these times start adding up of of times when you're supposed to be celebrating and just marked by this overwhelming loss and loneliness and I had been taught you look for happiness outside of yourself that's where you find it you know that's where you you that's where it comes from so <clears throat> I thought the reason I'm lonely is because I'm not working and I'm unfulfilled and I need to have something else in my life that's outside my family. So when my daughter was young enough or was of an age where she could do preschool a couple hours and I found a, a reliable babysitter, um, I went back to work and um, I'm a therapist 
I'm a wounded healer, admittedly. And I went into this dream job because I'm an, an art therapist and this was this dream job of other expressive therapists and, and everything. And it was a domestic violence, domestic violence agency. And I was working with children who had been abused and I had done my research in domestic violence in graduate school. I did not see what was coming. I did not, I was not prepared for what happened sitting and talking to these clients, to these kids that I was working with. And they just kept telling my story over and over and over and over again. And um, I couldn't separate from it. And I used to, it, it kicked off what I now know as PTSD in such a strong way. I couldn't sleep. I had severe anxiety. Um, and so I just numbed, you know, that was the only way that I could cope with that. And um, it was so out of control that my therapist said, I really think that you need to look at AA or rehab. And I said, I can't go to AA. My clients might be in those meetings. I can't do that. I can't, you know, that's for them, not for me, you know, like, um, and she said, well, you know, maybe we need to look at rehab, you know, and like, I, I can't, I'm, I take care of my kids, right? Like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't get treatment. I can't do that. And then our house was hit by a hurricane. And uh, shortly after my husband was headhunted for a job in China. So I had my geographical cure. I'm going to go to China. Can't really get access to stuff. It'll be a whole new start. Um, I'll be able to, because when I left Pittsburgh, I did have a fresh start and I, I did have a start over. So I thought this will be the same thing. Like I'll be able to have a fresh start. I'm going to leave this area um, and it's going to be amazing. And so I went to China and living as an expat, I now know if you were fractured, the pressure of doing that will just, just take you to pieces. I, I use the analogy of a, a windshield. If you have a little crack in your windshield, the pressure from living without your support systems in a foreign country where English was not readily used um, and you have none of your familiar comforts and I couldn't access technology in the way that I thought I could even connect with people at home, which are now 12 hours apart. It just, I had no idea what I had and what I was relying on until it was all gone. And <clears throat> alcohol is absolutely everywhere. And so it's just like cheers. Everybody knows your name. There's a bar right on site. Everybody's lonely and sad and missing family. And now you're all family and you're all drinking and you don't drive anywhere. You walk everywhere. And like my kids are now of an age that they can manage a little bit more on their own. And um, women's groups, you know, alcohol was involved. Lunch started at 11 and then it just continued. Like it was a common everyday part of your um, of life. And 
it just kept getting progressively worse. And as God does, as my higher power does, um, he put somebody sober in the apartment above me. And this person happened to be from my same hometown. And so um, she relapsed and went to treatment. Um, And my vision of treatment had always been like an inpatient psych ward. I had never like, that's what I'd always seen. And she came back and talked about this place that was about healing and nurturing and they had a trauma program. And that's what I knew was my, was my, how I was going to get better. Um, so I had made it, I had said out loud to the universe, I need to go to rehab. I need to get help. And, you know, my husband said, Oh, you're fine. You don't need to go to rehab. You're, you're okay. You know, cause I'm really good at hiding exactly how bad things were. Um, I was a, hundred percent a binge drinker. So I maybe wouldn't drink at home, but when I did drink, it was on, you know? Um, and so I was hiding so much and, um, eventually we started to really have a conversation about that. I needed to do that. And, um, the final tipping point was I was going out to the bars and I was staying out till five, six o'clock in the morning. And um, on one of those occasions, I was hanging out with somebody that I should not have been hanging out with because I didn't want the party to end. And I was assaulted. And I didn't even recognize that I was assaulted. I thought it was my fault. I thought that I deserved what I got. I thought that I had made that situation happen, even though I had said I wasn't, that I didn't want anything with, I didn't want anything with this person that I was married, that I wasn't going to um, do that. <clears throat> I mean, I have responsibility in the situation, but I didn't, I had my self-worth and my self-value was so low that I didn't understand that I had been assaulted. It wasn't until I was in treatment that I was able to really understand that so I told my husband that I had cheated on him and um that you know that I didn't remember part of the night and that you know that like that it was really bad and so we decided that I would go to rehab in two weeks Uh, I needed to get the kids through the end of school that I would do that. And I had started a charity with a group of women in China and we had a bar crawl and I didn't, I didn't want to go to rehab before we had finished the bar crawl. Right. I had responsibilities. So, um, so crazy now to say that those things out loud, but that was the case. And my charity meant a lot to me. Um, and it was something that we had really worked hard on. And so, so the bar crawl is happening in the same place that I have been assaulted in the same area. So I'm there for a week preparing, making sure that we're doing all the things because we have to get all of this prepared. And I stopped sleeping. And again, I'm not recognizing that this is trauma, right? 
And I am just functioning on just no sleep and alcohol every day. And so the event happens and all of this stuff and some, and, and my assailant is there, he's mixed into the whole thing. Um, and so it was about seven days total that I had maybe an hour of sleep here or there. And so I am full on manic at this point and I can't make heads or tails. And I call my best friend and I'm like, I'm, you know, telling her about the whole situation, um, telling her about everything that happened. And she kept saying to me, do you have a safety plan? Do you have a safety plan? And I'm thinking we're having this conversation about this great bar crawl and like how amazing things were. And she kept, and I'm like, Mel, why are you asking me if I have a safety plan? And she said, I'm really afraid you're gonna kill yourself. She's known me all through college. We were roommates, like she's my sister. And it was really hard to hear that. And she wasn't wrong. I, because my mom had killed herself, I was so against suicide that I didn't realize how suicidal that I was, if that makes sense. And the risks that I was taking and just the sheer disregard for myself. Um, so after that conversation, we decided that I would leave for rehab in a week. And so I got everything in, in, in order and I got on a plane and I have been sober, alcohol-free ever since, since I um, flew into Thailand. And I was there for 10 weeks and it was the best thing that I could have ever done for myself. Um, it saved my marriage. It gave me a chance to start working through the volumes of trauma. Um, and it was one of the hardest things I ever did, but it is one of the best things that I have ever done for myself. Um, so, sorry, that was, that's, so that's my story. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, Heather, thank you so much for sharing there. That was a lot. That was a lot. So many layers, so many layers. <laughs> I don't know how to share it without the pieces that were in there, right? Like I just, they were all kind of, yeah. It's funny because <clears throat> I had mentioned earlier that stories one are how people connect, but then I genuinely feel like that people can connect with one or 17 parts of anyone's story. Like when you hear mine, our childhood is so similar. It's not even funny. Like it's crazy how similar it is. So, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's a great thing. Um, because I genuinely feel like, especially with stories like yours, Heather, where it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that becomes so relatable to people. And 
you probably at some point were like, there's nothing, there's no way out of this, you know, <laughs> this is my, which normal. I think <laughs> yeah. totally, which I think yeah. is huge for people to understand and hear is you may think that you are unsavable, but at the end of the day, all, I, I mean, it's hard work. It's really hard work. Um, but any, anyone can do it. Wow. Yeah. I think that what I have decided over the years is that I went through the journey that I went through. This is one of the reasons I became a therapist is because I can relate to people and their, um, and their stories. And my hiccup was that because of, of chemicals, because of my addiction, my way of learning how to handle it and deal with it, I couldn't resolve or um, manage all of that at that time. And it wasn't until I got sober and I was able to do the work sober that I was able to kind of really, it never goes away, but it is not the same. I can deal with the volumes of my story now. And I understand where my triggers are and I understand, and we're like onions. We're always working on, there's not always another layer of like uh, recovery and wellness. And as long as I live in and every day prioritize my recovery, then I'm, I'm good. If, if I don't, then um, then I'm just apt to repeat the same mistakes from before. I fully understand that. I mean, it, it, we've learned through studying what alcohol does to the brain, how we're almost not equipped, well, we're not equipped to think rationally. So when you talk about putting yourself in positions where you were in danger, you know, we, we aren't thinking rationally mm -hmm. during the times where we are drinking, but also the times where we, we think we're sober as well. You know, alcohol has changed the way our brain functions to the point where we're not able to, you're just not equipped. You're not able to, to deal with things, at least on the deeper level that you need to while you're drinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, agree with Meredith about certain parts of your story just being relatable not for me it wasn't the childhood part but it was the middle age part and where it was so okay to drink and it was encouraged and the mommy culture and that's a huge part of my story um so relatable there in in that part of what you had to share um oh wow that's uh many layers there that's for sure many I'm an onion. Yeah. yeah, I I apologize. My Zoom kept going out on me. I've been having issues with it, but I heard most of your story, Heather, um, and what you were saying, Meredith and Lisa. Um, it, it's truly amazing how you have come out of that to the other side. I mean, <laughs> you are yeah. a beautiful woman inside and out, and to have been able to um, process the amount of trauma um, an addiction that you have is truly amazing. I, I mean, I, I, I just, I can't imagine. Um, I, I don't have the childhood trauma, um, that you had 
had other issues, but not, not to that extent at all. Um, my trauma was later on as well, started at 40, <laughs> um, versus, you know, um, earlier, but thank you so very much for sharing that because I, I think it's, I think it will speak to many, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it will, it will touch those that it needs to touch and get them on their, their own path. And on, on that point there, what Dana just talked about, about, um, when it becomes a quote problem, you know, when, how far back you can go. I think this is what's going to be so interesting is some people think, oh, well, you know, I, this is only something that's been a problem for me for the past five years and I'm in my fifties and, you know, but majority of my life was fine, but it's not right now. And it doesn't really matter how far back you have to go. It's, it's where you are right now. You know, the problem could have arisen in the last five years or been there since you were two and a half years old. You know, it, it just, it doesn't matter. It's, it, they're real. And, and at any time in your life, you can address it at any time, no matter what your past is. True. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's amazing what the, the, the predicaments we put ourselves in yeah. when we're drinking. Like I look back on things and I'm like, I am, I am so yeah. embarrassed and it is just, I'm awkward with my own self in even having these thoughts go running through my my mind again of what I was doing. And just like you were saying, Heather, that that just, oh, it, it's just cringeworthy of, of the thoughts of, of what we do to ourselves when we're not in our right mind. And we don't know we're not because we think we're perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> and we're so not. At times I've had those exact feelings where I think back on you know, something that's happened years and years ago. And I have to like take a deep breath and stop thinking about it. Cause it's like overwhelming yeah. it, how badly it could have turned out. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I definitely, I like, I'm not kidding about the guardian angel. Like the things yes. that, you know, in college yeah. that we would do and just thought were normal and the chances that we would take and the people we would expose ourselves to and, and just, um, you know, like we went to this bar as underage every single Thursday. That was the time to go. And one Thursday we didn't go and the alcohol control board busted the bar. And there was like 142 underage people. There were like three of age people. And somehow myself and my girlfriends who went every single Thursday didn't go this Thursday. Like that was unheard of. Why would we not be there? Of course we were going to be there. And I don't even remember why we didn't go, but just little things like that. So like, unfortunately or fortunately, it allowed me to continue for such a long period of time because, um, I didn't have some of those consequences. I didn't lose a job. I didn't get a DUI. I didn't get busted underage drinking. Like, um, so my consequences weren't there in, other than just personal consequences yeah. or, you yeah. know, some of the chaos that I was creating in my own relationships, um, which are very hard and not as easy to measure. Um, you know, I was in a head-on collision with a drunk driver on my way to a bar. Wow. Like you talk, like I now know that these, I equate these as whispers of, you know, where my mm -hmm. higher power is like, wake up. Yeah. You know, like what you're doing is, is dangerous. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. 
who knows? But thankfully I am because we get to have these amazing conversations and hopefully help another person on this journey who, I mean, that's why I'm telling my story so that um, maybe something, this is one of the benefits I do find of, of 12 step programs is that you hear other people's stories. And so this is kind of a way of, of doing the same thing um, without kind of the 12 step meeting is that we can share our stories and, and find common ground. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing, Heather. So sorry I took up all the time. I think we'll have to hear these your story that's, next. That's episode. fine. No, that hour I, flew I, by. I was glued to you. Yeah, and I think it was worth the time. I mean, I think so too. You, you wouldn't want to cut that short. That was too meaningful too. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Well, thanks, ladies, for listening and your yeah. your um, powerful words of response. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Of course. Do we want to stop? Yeah, I think so. I think we've had a lot today. <laughs> no, that's, I think that's wonderful. And we'll share all of our stories in other episodes and um, continue the conversation. Yes. Yay. So thank you all yeah. so much, ladies. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. You. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good job, Heather. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at four sober chicks. That's number four sober chicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.